the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I enjoy words. I guess as a preacher, teacher, speaker, you hopefully will become somewhat of an accurate and compassionate and a clear wordsmith. And one of the words I found that uh, really was new to me, and that's the word crux. Now, we've used that term in our language, the crux of the matter. Usually that means what's at the center of the matter of all of this? What's at the, the turning point of that matter, the crux of the matter? I found out that that actually came way back during the time of Shakespeare and the thespians, and they would use that as a movement of a play. And they would say the crux of the play, which meant that the play is going in one direction. Usually it's a, it's a drama or something that's bringing into a tragedy. But then all of a sudden there's a crux in this that turns it into something that is far more blessed, far more happier, a good ending, a happy ending. And that's where really, well, they got that from the word crucifixion. They didn't know it, but they did. And what really happens is we see that everything is pointed to this horrible time where finally Jesus Christ is bloodied and battered and he's hanging on the cross and writhing in pain and spitting out some last words and finally he dies, you know. And that looks like it's a tremendous drama than tragedy. But then the crux of the matter is three days later there's the resurrection and now we have happy day, oh, happy day. And so when you think of the word crux, I want you to think of the crucifixion. And for those of you who have trusted Christ as Savior, the very crux in your life ought to have been the time that you came to the cross and you trusted Christ as your Savior. So then all of a sudden your life has taken on new meaning with purpose and an eternal future and all that that's in there for you. And then there are those that perhaps soon thereafter, they remember the cross and what Jesus Christ did, did for them on the cross and they surrendered all to the Lord then and that became their crux now. Not only just being a Christian, but being a Christian that is committed to Christ. You know, you start out as a curious person about Christianity, and then maybe a little bit later on, you move into someone who casually engages with the Lord. But then there's a time in your life where you fully sell out for the Lord. And my prayer is that the message today for those of you that have not come to Christ, that you would, based on what you're going to hear, what he said on the cross, and then what he did for us on the cross. Those of you that already know Christ is your Savior by faith alone, I pray that what you're going to hear today, that we will become more and more like Christ and follow maybe his principles, some of the things that he taught us when he was actually speaking on the cross and what he actually had to say. The other thing I enjoy doing is I like reading biographies, generally of leaders and people that have been involved in things, because what they say is so important, it can change all of history. I remember reading the story of the USS Maine, if you remember the Maine was one of our our warships that happened to be in um, Havana Harbor. And while it was there, it was overtaken. And when it was, it was sunk and many of the men died. And that's really where you get later on Theodore Roosevelt climbing up San Juan Hill and he's screaming and the men are following behind him, remember the Maine. And they use that famous word as a rallying comment. And there's many of those. 
Well, as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to look at his last words as well, because last words seem to be even more important, because when they're giving the last words, it's usually what is on their mind, that which is the most important, what they want to say. It really reveals their character, and watch this. The greater the trial, the greater the tragedy, the greater they're coming to that last moment of their life, whatever that might be, that crushing blow, and now they're speaking, that almost comes so much from the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth then shouts out these truths. And so here's Jesus giving seven last sayings at the cross. Now you might be saying, why would that be important? Because so many of us have been taught that we need to follow the life of Christ. We need to follow his example, and so we should, and I don't want to minimize that. But I would also like to maximize what he had to say at the end. And I do that because of a passage of scripture. And if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to open them up. And let's review 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through verse 25. If you will, it's in your notes. If you'd like, you can follow along. But let me read them to you. Because here's what Peter, a disciple, someone who at one time was near the cross when Jesus was there, although he did flee. But you'll notice here's what he wrote about Christ at that time in Christ's life. He says, for you Christians have been called for this purpose. What purpose is that? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Christ suffered. Now, generally all of his steps, but more in context, it'd be the steps of his suffering. And the purpose is that we follow that. That's our purpose in life, is to be able to endure the suffering that we'll have as a Christian, even to the point of death, and we do it like Christ did. And how did he do this? It said, who committed no sin? Now, obviously, we will still commit sin, but our desire is that we would be sinless, and we can't be, so at least we should sin less. Then it says, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and so I believe that even at the end of our life that there'd be no deceit that what comes out of our mouth is really who we are when we are alive, and that's because we have committed ourselves to be truly honest and decent people filled with integrity. But also, how did he do this so we know how to follow in his steps? And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. In other words, when people were giving him tremendous uh, flack and words and epithets in his life, I wanted you to know he did not revile back. So he didn't really answer. He just took it very silently as a sheep going to a slaughter. And perhaps that would do us a great deal of, of a benefit if we would return less evil for evil and more good for the evil that's given to us. And then it says he uttered no threats. So he didn't point his bony finger at wrath of those folks that were doing this and saying these things to him. But how did he do this? How did he accomplish this? This is what he did, but how did he do this? It said he kept entrusting himself. And you might want to underline the word kept. That means you have to keep on doing this. It's something you've got to lock in on like a laser. Entrusting means over and over again, reminding yourself that you are trusting yourself to him who judges righteously. You see, the Lord knows the whole situation from the beginning to the end, and he knows what purpose he wants to bring out from it, so we have to trust him. He is the righteous judge. We are not to judge, nor are we to execute. And then it says, and he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And really, to me, we can't do that, obviously, but what we can do is remember that since he did all of that so that he would take our sins, that we want to be like him knowing that he has paid our sin debt. It goes a little bit further, so that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness, which gives us the power to do the very things we're to do if we're going to follow in his steps and fulfill the purpose that we've been called to. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd. So in a few moments, we're going to begin a quick review from last week on some of the last words, so you can really see what was deep in his heart for us. Over the last uh, number of years, I like to accumulate famous sayings, generally of the last words of people, and I've come across some research about the famous infidels who, when their life was very much alive and healthy and they just seemed to 
be able to acquire a platform, they would speak out, preach out, write out, shout out their anti-God secular worldview and capture as many disciples after their opinions and views that they could. And so coming from the writings of Edgar J. Wrigley, he's given me a lot of famous quotes of those who are infidels but happened to be on their deathbed, which now changes what they were saying. Now, I have too many to read to you today, but I just picked out some, and I'm going to go through them quite quickly. And so this is going to reveal those infidels who stood so strong in their belief that was so anti-God and acquired so many followers into their belief system that those folks are still here today as they have many multiple generations of that belief system, but they never read what these men said on their deathbed. So the first one is Carteres. He said, I will gladly give $150,000 to have it proved to me that there is no hell. And then he died. Sir Thomas Scott said, Until this moment I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Hobbes said, I'm taking a fearful leap into the dark. And then he died. Infidel Adam said this when he was dying, I'm lost, lost, lost. I'm damned, damned, damned. And he breathed his laugh. Voltaire said this, and you know who Voltaire was. He's the one that said, "On what 12 ignorant fishermen put together, I, one Frenchman, will destroy. Not only did he die, but on the very spot he made that statement is now the Geneva Bible Society's headquarters. But Voltaire said this, O Christ, O Jesus, I must die abandoned by God and men. And then it says his condition had become so frightful that even his infidel associates were afraid to approach his bedside. And after he passed... His nurse repeatedly said, For all the wealth of Europe, I will never see another infidel die. Volney said the atheist concerning the future was something awful to behold. Nothing could calm his fears, and all he kept doing was rocking back and forth on his deathbed and yelling this, My God, my God, my God, my God, my God, my God, and then he died. The last is that I'll give you for today is Maribo, and he said, Give me more opium that I might not think of eternity. You know, I don't think we'd have Christianity today if Jesus wasn't who he really claimed to be. And he said all those wonderful things, and at the very end of his life, he then decided to call down 10,000 angels, wipe out all these guys who were betting for his cloak and all that was going on, and he really turned mean and nasty and shook his fist up at God in anger and all of that. We'd have no Christianity today. But the authenticity of Christ is so much not only shared and showed in Scripture through prophecy and many other things, but even in, we might say, somewhat of the pathos of his death when he died and the seven things that he had to say at the end. And so let me just, by way of review, go over these very quickly with you, and then I want to give you some new insights that we can gain from the last. So first of all, the first thing he said, and by the way, this is in as much accurate order as I could ascertain through my study. So the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing in Luke thirty-three, thirty-four. And the basic principle there is that Jesus died forgiving those who sinned against him. And there's a lot of lessons when he did that. He forgave them because they were sinning against him. And the first thing I can take aback from that is, you know, I've sinned against the Lord, and if he could forgive those blokes, he certainly can forgive me, and I receive that from him. And I pray that you will receive the forgiveness from the Lord because he is a forgiver. The other thing is that we're never more like Christ than when we're giving, like he did, his life, but also than when we're forgiving. And if we really want to enjoy the continued forgiveness of the Lord, not to keep eternal life, but just that intimacy with the Lord, we need to forgive others. So if you will, just take a trip down memory lane. Is there anyone in your life maybe continually is a, 
a bane to you, someone that keeps you up at night and you have these verbal arguments going on about that person. You haven't really released them to the Lord and forgiven them. Well, Jesus looked at these guys and he said, Father, forgive them so they don't know what they're doing. And those people, they may not know exactly all that they're doing either. It doesn't really matter. Just release them to the Lord. The second phrase he used was found in Luke twenty-three forty-three, and it says, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That was an interesting thing when he said that because he had two thieves, one on each side, and they were railing against Christ, both of them. But all of a sudden, almost at a magical moment, one of them kind of shifted and then looked at Christ and said, you know, I don't see any sin in him. Remember me today when you'll be in paradise, when you come back in your kingdom. And all that was basically saying in a big way that I believe that I'm a sinner and you're not and that you are the Savior and that you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that there is an eternity afterwards and I can be with you and that you're going to be in a place called paradise or heaven and then the fact that I look to you as well as coming back as sovereign God. And so I receive all of that knowing that he could do that and he did such a great job that I want to do that as well. But I want to not only forgive those people that are next to me, but I want to bring the gospel to those who will oppose me so dramatically. Think about the person who is in your life that doesn't know Christ as Savior and has given you a raw deal. It could be on a ball team. It could be at work. It could be a neighbor. You know, it's easy to forgive them and say, okay, I'll just kind of stay out of their way. I won't make waves. I'll kind of be a good Christian around them. I'll smile and be courteous. We get all of that in the first statement of Christ. This takes it the next level. Would you actually then engage in a relationship with that person with such a forgiving heart that you will communicate clearly, compassionately, the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That person who continually irritates you. And that's what he did here. Today you'll see me in paradise. What a joyful statement that is. The third one we studied was John 19, 26 and 27. Jesus is on the cross and he moves away from some of that spiritual stuff and now he gets into the real practical stuff because he has a mother that's still alive. What's going to happen? He's going to die. He's going to take care of his mother. I wonder how many of you have already begun thinking about your estate and what you're going to do to leave your estate and to whom you're going to leave it. And I pray that you do take care of that, that it is important that when you die, you want to be able to one that even before death can do as much as you can to guide where the money and the resources that the Lord has given to you that you've managed for so long that you don't just walk away from it and let the vultures come in and take it and misuse it, that you would take care of it even in your death, that it's all prepared for, whether it's for family or for ministry so we can continue on and other things as well. But that being said... There's still that right now, who are you going to have to take care of those people in your life? This church seems to be salt and peppered with a lot of people taking care of aged parents or a parent here. And that just reminds me of how much like Christ you really were. So when he said, woman, behold your son, he wasn't talking about woman, look at me, look at me, look at me. Because he stopped using the word son to him earlier on in his earthly ministry and he moved it from son to savior to who he was as God in the flesh. So really what he's saying is over here he's hanging on the cross and he says, woman, behold your son. And I believe he's nodding to this disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I believe it was John that wrote the gospel of John. And so he says, behold your son. And then he looks at the disciple and he says, behold your mother. And the basic principle there is very simple that even in his dying he expressed selfless love. That no matter what pain, what tragedy, what he, what he was going through emotionally and physically and all the rest... He did not forget the needs of others that were closest to him. So maybe right now you've got some people in your life and you're going through some tough times. So I hope you don't just come home from work and just dump on your family. I hope that when you 
have a life that you're not just raining on everybody else's parade. No matter what you're going through, you're going to be, here's a phrase, be an energy giver, not an energy taker. You'll be a joy giver, not a joy sucker. You know, taking that joy from other people. And so when Jesus is on the cross, no matter what he was going through, he wanted to allay any concerns that his own mother would have who would take care of him or her. And so right off the bat, he was doing that. And so I take away a lot from that. My parents are now in heaven, but I do have extended family members. And I have people that are older in my life that I know that don't have family members. And so I want to adopt them into my sphere of influence in some measure to make sure they're, they're being taken care of. You'll probably notice that nearly every Sunday, as I open up our services with prayer, I do pray for our homebound. You remember? Do you hear me say that? And I don't, I don't have that kind of connection like I'd like to have with them, but I never want them to be forgotten that they have a need. And then maybe that's good for all of us to do that. Well, let's go into some new material. The next one would be in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Jesus says something that comes with an incredible statement. This is one that has really perplexed many Bible scholars for many years, and that's the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What pathos is in that? So the principle is, is and I want you to really mark this and really underline it, Jesus died understanding the seriousness of sin. You say, how do you get all of that out of that? Well, very simple. You see the word forsaken there? It means to be left alone, but it means more than being left alone. You know, in um, the King James Version of the Bible, there's a verse in Hebrews chapter 13 that says that Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For the longest time, I looked at this, leaving and forsaking. They sound so much alike. Why use same words? It's kind of like being redundant, you know? Why, why do that? Until I got a greater understanding of the difference between leaving you and forsaking you. So here it is. Leaving you means I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back. When you forsake, it means I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. I'm abandoning you. I am leaving you and not being a part of your life any longer. And so at this particular point, there was that sense of being forsaken at that moment. You know, sin could do what nothing else in the universe could do. Listen to that phrase. Sin could do what nothing else in the universe could do. Now, what do I mean by that is this. Man could not separate the Father God from the Son. Satan could not separate the Father from the Son. Demons could not separate the Father from the Son. There's no passage in Scripture that said that they could do that. But here's what. Sin could separate the Father from the Son, and only sin could do that. So when I look up there at that moment where the Lord God had to step aside, Father, and let Jesus experience that blackness, that very moment of experiencing the sin, all the sin of mankind, all mankind on himself, God the Father in his holiness couldn't do that. So at that very moment, Jesus Christ was now at the very worst part because of all my sin was on him. And that's what really separates us. So that's the principle. Jesus died understanding the seriousness of my soul. What does that teach me? To me, I look at that and I say, that teaches me the most profoundest of all truth. That if sin could separate God the Father and God the Son at that moment when he was taking the sin on himself for you and me, what could my sin do? That when I have sin, whether it's in my thought where it starts or my talk where it comes out or whether it's my walk, which is a daily lifestyle, whether it's my thought, talk, and walk, when I do sin, when I choose to allow that sin to become more prevalent in my life, obviously it died at a cross when I put my faith in Christ, but I still have that old self. When I do that, what does that do? I don't lose my salvation. The Lord doesn't abandon me, but at that very moment, 
It is so serious that I am now lacking what I really need from the Lord for me to be able to continue a life of pleasing Him, but also to do the kind of functionality that I need to do in my life. Let me use this illustration. There was a man that um, came into my office and he said, I'm, I'm leaving the military, I'm transitioning out now, and I want to find a career, and I want to know what God really wants me to do. And I really want to do only what God wants me to do. Can you help me? I have a program that I put together. It's called Where Do I Belong? And so we go through a lot of scripture and a lot of principles of self-discovery and sensing God and what we need to do to get ready to discern God's will of where do I belong. So I began taking him through that. And early in the process, obviously, I want to make sure that they're a Christian because you really will never understand the things of God until you know Christ is your Savior and you have the new nature in you and the capacity then to know the Word, know the Spirit, know God, and be able to sense His leading. So we, we took care of that. That was all done. So now he says, I'm ready. I want to do only what God wants me to do. Should I stay in San Antonio? Should I go to another place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I said, all right. Now, how are you doing with the relationship that you have with your wife? You know, because that's, relationships are important. The first one, the most meaningful to a, a man and a woman, husband and wife, is your mate. How was it? He said, he hung his head down and he says, you know, I want you to know that I've divorced my wife. Uh, she's just not fit to be a military wife. She's not fit for my, my life. She's a beautiful woman, beautiful German woman. I picked her up in Germany when I was stationed there. Got married, got two wonderful kids. But I just, I can't have her in my life. She's a distraction, so I got her out of my life. So then we spent many uh, uh, sessions going over what Scripture had to say. And one of the biggest ones was, if you want to understand wisdom, there has to be no sin in your life that is not recognized, confessed, and forsaken. That if you have sin in your life, it is mucking up the gears in such a way that you'll never be able to experience all that God has for you. It's hard enough even when you're as clean as you possibly can because we still are wrought with our own frailties and humanity. But when we throw sin in there, little or a lot, it begins to cloud out whatever connection we have with the Lord for the purposes that he has for us in our life. We can know it academically, but not in a very real, sustainable way. So then he said, I I need to get back to my wife. I said, I'm glad you said that because your wife came in without you knowing this and she begged me to do something, whatever I could, to help you guys get back together again. Her name was Olga. And so we began to meet. And after many visits, there was healing going on. And I had the privilege of remarrying them back together again. They, they came into my office. Their two kids were there. The daughter was the, um, I forget what they called, maid of honor. Okay, matron of honor, she's married. Maid of honor. And he was the best man for the dad. And they came together in this. Again, because he was committed, I want to do what God wants me to do. Ah, I was sin in my life. I need to deal with it, and now I can have wisdom. Now, the story goes on, and I don't have time to go into that, but for right now, I want you to know that sin really does a number on our life. So you as a Christian, I want you to know that it's serious enough. Now, the good news is that when Jesus died on the cross, when he took all the sin on himself, and then he died and he rose again, it satisfied that payment with God the Father. The sin was cast into the sea of forgiveness, far away as the east is from the west, that that all was done at that time for Christ. So now when I trust Christ, I'm united with him in victory. It doesn't mean I won't have sin in my life, but I won't have the power of sin in my life as I once had before. That all being said, that to me gives me great hope for today. If Jesus could take all my sin on himself then and pay for it once and for all. He didn't have to keep dying over and over again. Once and for all, I'm standing before you with my sins paid for by Christ, victory over all that, because Jesus saw the seriousness of it because of what God the Father had to do momentarily in his life. To me, that's a serious issue, and I now come to him with my sin, and I need a Savior that no amount of good works that I do will ever overcome the sin and how bad that is. Even my best works are filthy rags, Isaiah says, so I've got to come to him just as I am, a complete sinner, and I've got to turn that all over to him.
by faith. And so that's my takeaway point. So how should I live now? How important is that in my own life? Well, one thing is, is I need to remember that although it's going to hinder my relationship with the Lord, that in itself fuels my hindered relationships with other people. So I have to then deal with sin as soon as it comes in. As soon as that bird lands on my head, I've got to shoo that bird out. As soon as that thought comes in, I've got to deal with it right on the spot. Right on that spot. And do I do it all the time? I want to, and I'm working on it. I'm hoping I'm doing it. But I have to tell you that I too want to stand clean before the Lord and clean before you. And when I do that, I can step back and I can still say, but that's okay because Jesus died and he rose again. I'm united with him and through him, I can then grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord. So just see the seriousness of sin in your life by that statement and know that Jesus died for you and me. Here's the fifth one. That's found in John 19, 28. And he says, I am thirsty. You know, some people thought, well, that must mean he's thirsty for God. He just said, why have you, forgiven, or why have you forsaken me? Now he's thirsty for God. I don't believe it's referring to God, Jesus having a thirst for God. I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I don't see any implications of that in Scripture. Later on, you're going to see where that they brought <clears throat> liquid to him. When they brought him liquid, you know, it was because he was thirsty. So I think it was a natural response. So I believe Jesus is expressing all the frailties of humanity and our dependence upon him. Now think about it. Here he is on the cross. Probably he could have had uh, brought a rain shower and stuck out his tongue and grabbed some rain. There's a lot of weird stuff he could have done. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.